Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Art Bell, author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And if you want to level up your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Art Bell. Art is a writer and former media executive known for creating, building, and managing successful cable television channels. His recently published memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, was honored as a finalist in the 2020 Best Books Awards for Memoir. While working at HBO, Art pitched the idea of a 24-hour comedy network and helped develop and launch HBO's The Comedy Channel, which eventually became Comedy Central. He went on to hold senior executive positions in both programming and marketing, and then after leaving Comedy Central, Art became president of Court TV, where he was a guiding force behind one of the most successful brand evolutions in cable television. And then in addition to writing, he also likes to play piano and jazz drums. Guys, it's gonna be such a fascinating conversation, uh, which in an area that we don't normally get into here on the show. So I'm excited to chat a little bit more with Art. But first off, if you are an expert guest, if you are somebody who likes to spend their time being interviewed on podcasts, 
Um, then head over to guestio.com. Uh, there's an, we built an entire free marketplace essentially for podcasters and guests to get connected with each other. Um, so if you have not created your free profile over there, then you can create that it's totally, totally 100% for free. Your profile will boast of all the accomplishments and achievements. Like think of it as your one page, your one sheet that you would send out as you pitch at different shows to, to accept you as a guest. Um, and so that's over at guestio.com. Start right now today for free, guestio.com. Art, what is up? Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So I find stories like yours fascinating uh, simply because this usually isn't something that most people find themselves getting advice around when they're younger. Like when people ask you what you want to do when you grow up, you don't really find a lot of people going the path that you went and knowing that that was the case early on. So I want to rewind the clock before we talk tactics here and ask you uh, just to set the scene for us for your childhood home. You know, where did you grow up? What were your parents like? What were your goals and aspirations at the time? Do you remember? Yeah. I uh, grew up on the Jersey Shore in the 60s, and my parents, my dad was an accountant. My mom was a piano teacher. We had to take piano lessons uh, as a condition of being fed regularly, (laughs) which, you know, again, I say that kind of kiddingly, but it was was great. I hear so many people say, man, I wish somebody had forced me to learn how to play piano when I was a kid. Well, that's what happened to me, and I I love playing piano. Anyway, that's what was going on there. I early on started watching comedy on television. uh, Okay, just stand-up comedy or sitcoms? Well, I would say the stand-up comedy stood out because I used to watch the Ed Sullivan Show, which was a weekly variety show on Sundays, and they had the regular rotating cast of of stand-up comedians. You know, Alan King. Actually, I saw Richard Pryor for the first time in his first appearance on, on the Ed Sullivan show, he must've been 19 years old, if that. Wow, wow. Um, yeah, it was unbelievable. I thought he was the funniest guy who ever lived. And I must've been, I can't tell you exactly, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, I don't know, somewhere in there. I was so taken with stand-up comedy and the other comedy that was on television, including sitcoms. Sure. And just, you know, kept thinking, how does this work? And, and I was fascinated by the power of making people laugh. As I got older, you know, I started um, listening to comedy albums, you know, uh, mm, yeah. George Carlin, Robert Klein. Those guys were putting out albums. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, they, they started as, a, as an audio group, Monty Python. And, mm. you know, just I started absorbing all the comedy I could find. I really loved it and wanted to be funny myself. I, I never thought I would be a stand-up comedian, but I knew it was important for me to be funny. And I, I did work on that a bit along the way. And I just kept up with it throughout my childhood and and growing up. In my high school, I started an underground newspaper. We wrote satirical articles about the school. They were Mm -hmm. funny. And I found I like to write funny stuff too. So that was was my childhood on the Jersey Shore. Uh, Little background, Bruce Springsteen was the the neighborhood bar band when I was growing up. And uh, it was funny. (laughs) No way. Yeah, really. And uh, and going to the beach every day in the summer was... uh, I recommend it. Let me tell you that. I worked a great, <laughs> I worked a great adventure amusement park at, at, on the night shift. And during the day, I went to the, the beach. And that was, uh, that was my teenage years. Nice. What, what, about, uh, what about Johnny Carson? Did you watch any of that? Well, you know, and when you're younger, you don't get to stay up till 1130 and watch Johnny Carson. But yeah, certainly as, like, as I got older, Johnny Carson was even more than Ed Sullivan. Johnny Carson was a place that you, you went to make your bones as a as a stand-up comedian. So certainly yeah. any, as I got older, I started watching that. And then around the same time, at least for me, you know, as, as I was high school and college, um, Saturday Night Live came on the scene. 
And mm-hmm. that became the premier brand in comedy. Who, who, so who was like the cast that you remember watching? Okay, so Belushi for one. Got it. Okay, so Belushi and like Steve Martin and those guys. Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Gilda yeah. Radner, Bill Murray. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I remember distinctly when Bill Murray came on, If you mind, and don't mind me telling a quick story. Yeah, please. He was doing so badly on Saturday Night Live. He could not get a laugh for the first two or three weeks. And he came on in front of the audience the, the, the next week, straight to camera said, I don't know why I'm not, you know, kind of registering with you people. I don't know why it's not working. And talked for about five minutes about how he was really working hard to be funny. He's really, you know, trying to make this thing work. And like, you couldn't tell if he was kidding, if it was a gag, if it was real. And I thought, man, this is a great moment in comedy history, just watching this. And then the rest is history in that he be, he went on to become, you know, a brilliant comedy star on, yeah, on, yeah. Um, on that show and everywhere else. So comedy takes many forms. Anyway, so yeah, so that's that was um, that basically takes us to the point where I went to college, graduated from college as an economics major. Yeah. And job as an economist in Washington, D.C. Got it. So that was that was kind of the question, right, is like. You, you grew up with all these influences. You have a huge passion for comedy and you want to continue doing comedy. But I, I assume the overall narrative at the time was, okay, Art, that's cool, that's fun, but also you need a real career, a real job, which probably well, influenced the, the, uh, the economic stuff. That you're doing. It's a good question and it's complicated. I'll give you some personal insight. My, my mother uh, was a piano teacher and, uh, and a musician. And her contention, however, was always that you cannot make a decent living in the arts. And that was kind of drilled into us as kids. Now, you don't believe everything your mother says. But the, the conversation in our house is always, look, you can do whatever you want. Make sure you have something to fall back on. So maybe you should get your accounting degree or maybe you should get your law degree or something like that. And I think that was a pretty common conversation in homes in the 60s where it was sure. really important for you to be successful because if you weren't, you wouldn't eat. So... That said, I'll switch gears a little bit. When I went to college, I became fascinated with economics. So that decision to be to take a job as an economist had nothing to do with it, at least consciously. Okay. I just thought economics was great. I got a job offer as an economist. I had friends who were going to LA to become television writers, and they became successful television writers. And I said, no, you guys go ahead. I'm going to be, the, be an economist. That's what I want to do right now. And I did that for three years. So before we get back into the story, what would be your advice to somebody that's headed off to college or maybe just in their early 20s or late teens trying to figure out what they want to do? And they have a passion that's similar to one that you had. Like it's, it's a passion in something that traditionally would not be looked at as an optimal career path. But what would be what would be your advice to them? My advice is keep your passion alive. Don't abandon it just because it's not going to become the first thing you do or what you study in college or what you tell your parents are you're going to do, but keep it alive. And then you're going to have to make some decisions, not one decision, but there will be several points in your career or in your early career when you can say, do I want to keep doing this? Or do I want to pursue my passion for some period of time? And if that doesn't work, I can go back to something else. That's always the question that people have. You know, do I do, I do it? Do I pursue my passion now? Or do I wait or or just forget about the whole thing? Yeah, got it. Okay, so now back into the story. You're an economist oh, still over on the East Coast. What happens next? Like, How do you end up producing television shows in Los Angeles? I was an economist, and um, as I said, I liked, I liked being an economist. I got to work with smart people, and I'd done it for three years. 
And one day at the end of the three years, I was sitting at my desk reading Cole Weekly, thinking, I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, again, when I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do? And maybe I should rethink the idea of going into television, film, comedy, something that I had been thinking about before I got involved with economics. So I literally changed the channel and went to business school. I thought that would be a good way to (laughs) stop working and then explore some other things, including, you know, film and television. Nobody told me at the time that getting an MBA was not the the quickest ticket to to, uh, film television jobs. As a matter of fact, (laughs) most of of my my friends were either going to Wall Street or, uh, you know, big marketing or consulting firms. And... Television companies weren't coming around to interview on these places. They just, they, for whatever reason, that wasn't the way to do it. So I I was one of the last guys to get a job. And I got a a job at CBS, finally, in finance, which was not something I wanted to do. But again, you know, I was hell-bent on being in the entertainment business. And I'm still on the East Coast. I'm I'm in New York. And I'm working at CBS. And I remember I took the job at half the the salary I had been making in Washington, D.C. when I left. Yeah. Two years earlier to go to business school. And I remember my father saying, okay, you're taking this job. You're getting paid half. What's the plan? Right. Because he, you know, obviously didn't see what the heck was going on. I said, don't worry. I want to be in the television business. This is all going to work out. I hung up and thought, I hope I'm right. <laughs> but I was right. Because what happened next is I, I didn't really like working in finance at CBS. But a friend of mine who had been working with me, and I know this is a big emphasis of your, of your show, went to HBO. And about two months after he got there, he called me up. He says, you got to come over here. It's great. And they're looking for somebody who knows how to do economic forecasting. And he said, I think you're the only guy I ever met in the entertainment business who claims to know how to do that. So I went over there, interviewed, got the job. And suddenly I'm out of the gigantic monolithic corporate CBS. And I'm I'm at HBO, which is a small, relatively new at that point, it was mid 80s extremely successful television company where people were walking down the halls, not only high-fiving because they were so successful, but saying, we have, we are going to change television. We are going to change the way people watch, how they think about it. We're going to change everything about it. And that's what they were in the process of doing. It was very exciting. Yeah, no kidding. Very exciting. That said, I was stuck doing econometric forecasting of subscribers for HBO, which, you know, again, that's what I was trying to not do when I left Washington. But I wanted to get close to the product. And HBO, you know, that was around the time they started doing those stand-up specials with Robert Klein and George Carlin and Billy Crystal and and, and, uh, Whoopi and Robin Williams. And they were great. And they were really kind of changing the model of what comedy was on television. Because before that, you couldn't put those guys on TV with their acts because they were you know, they had foul language. They right, had right. matter that you couldn't talk about on network. Suddenly, HBO's doing this uncut, and everybody loves it. So I was, right. I was close. So what was what was the next the next step after that? Then, so because you're doing something that you don't really enjoy, but you're working at the place and in the industry that you want to be in, which is a step in the right direction. So, so what what happens after that? Well, I, I had been thinking, uh, and I skipped this part a little bit. When I came out of school, I was thinking what I'd really like to do is work for some comedy channel. Why is there no comedy channel? That was around the time, you know, there was an all-music channel, there was an all-news channel, there was an all-sports channel. Where was the all-comedy channel? Remember, I was still in love with comedy. And I, uh, while I was in business school, I wrote 
a comedy, a musical comedy review called The Wharton Follies, which was very successful that year. And I had so much fun writing it. It reminded me how much I love comedy. But there was no comedy network. And I assumed any minute someone was going to start one. So when I got to HBO, I figured, okay, I'm going to start talking about this comedy network and see if I can't get anybody to, you know, to kind of jump onto this idea with me. I talked about it a little bit. Nobody really thought it was such a great idea. So finally, I said, I am going to go pitch the head of HBO programming, which was, you know, kind of a big deal because I was not very senior in the organization, to say the least, very junior. And she was, a, you know, her name was Bridget, and she was, she was kind of, she was tough. And she had a reputation as being tough. And uh, that didn't stop me. I went in there. And I said, you know, Bridget, I think HBO should do an all-comedy network. And she said, stop right there. That's the worst idea I ever heard. Let me tell you why. And she proceeded to tell me why for about 10 minutes. You know, no decent comedian would be on it. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. There's plenty of comedy on the, on other channels. You know, on and on. And then she said, you know, thanks for stopping by. Take care. And I walked out. And that was, you know, what could have been the end. But I just knew she was wrong. I still knew somebody was going to start one. And I figured this isn't going to die right here. I went back to my office. I started thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to end up getting another job eventually. Why don't I send out my resume with a description of this comedy network, which at this point I'd been thinking about in great detail, financially, what it would look like, what the programming could be, uh, you know, how it would work. And so I wrote that all up and my boss's boss caught me working on it one night and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing up this thing. He said, let me see. And he said, the chairman of HBO should see this. To make a long story short, the chairman of HBO saw it and liked it and uh, said, let's give it a try. So that's how we got the go-ahead to do Comedy Channel. Now, mind you, I, at this point, have no comedy business experience, none, zero. And suddenly I'm thrown in with some guys, some people in a group who are going to put this channel together who were in the comedy business for 10 years. They knew so much more than me. I was like, the first thing they said to me is, what do you know about comedy? And they were right. I didn't know much other than I liked it. And they weren't really willing to teach me. Comedy was kind of a closed club. You know, you were, yeah, you, were right. or you were an agent or, you know, you were a programmer, but, you know, you weren't a financial analyst. And uh, that was that was something I didn't expect. And I had to work through that for, for quite a long time, for the first year. Anyway. Did you do anything in particular to work through that? Well, it's a process of teaching yourself. I mean, um, I, I mean, as in, as in like, did, were, were you trying to learn more about comedy and like how to write and tell jokes? Or were you trying to learn no, more no. about the business of comedy and how it was to really present about, it to it, audiences? It was really about the business of comedy. The, okay. Nobody was asking me to be funny as part of yeah. my job. What they were asking me to do was to evaluate what was funny, to work on acquiring funny material and thinking about new avenues of comedy. And more than anything else, to think about what a comedy channel should be, how it should be marketed, how what kind of brand it should be, what the audience would be for it. I mean, we were starting from scratch. Nobody knew anything about it. The guys who came in from the comedy business, one of them was named Stu Smiley. He was the head of comedy for HBO. He wasn't really good at that stuff, the stuff I was just talking about, sort of envisioning what a channel would look like. But he knew everything about the business. He knew all the comedians and agents personally. So we were teamed up, but really felt to me to, um, you know, and and sort of my team to help figure out what the channel would be. Uh, and that's what I did. Yeah. So uh, can you kind of give us 
you know, obviously it went fairly well uh, because Comedy Central is still the you know, sole provider of comedy uh, in, you know, for, especially in terms of any network, that's for sure. So um, it obviously went pretty well. Can you kind of just tell us what the journey was like, you know, start to finish and, and, and then where you ended up going after you were done working on that project? Yeah. Well, first I'd like to disagree a little bit. It didn't go very well. The first month we were, at, we, after we launched comedy, we were savaged by the press. This isn't funny. HBO's made a huge blunder. They called us the gong channel. Uh, They were having so much fun saying that it was a swing and a miss. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. You know, I wrote the book, uh, which is called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And the lost my sense of humor part is about that first year. It was so Mm -hmm. difficult. And I went to work every day thinking they were going to pull the plug. That today was the day they were going to call me and say, you know, it's over. This isn't wow. working. We're not making money. So nice try, but you're fired. Amazingly, that didn't happen. What did happen is after the first year, we got some competition. MTV decided they were going to launch a comedy network. So they launched six months after we did. And um, six months after that, we merged. And that was not my idea. I actually thought we were, uh, we were fighting the good fight. The press was calling it the Comedy Wars, and it was you know, clear that there was only going to be one co- comedy network at the end of the process. Right. And we thought we were going to win. You know, we thought Comedy Channel was going to prevail, not MTV's channel, which was called HA, the Comedy Network. But they merged us, and they called me in and said, you and your opposite number that are programming at, at MTV Network's channel are going to be teamed up. You guys are going to create the new channel. You can't call it Comedy Channel. You got to figure out which programming to use. And basically, you got to start all over again. Hire new people, you know, hire people from the, the, the uh, respective channels that you want and fire the rest of them. I mean, that was almost as difficult as starting the channel in the first place. Yeah, no kidding. Getting no that kidding. Larger. But that's what we did. Uh, we did get the merger going, found out very quickly how to work with each other, even though we had different concepts of what a comedy network should be. We figured out what the merger would look like. We renamed the channel. We relaunched, you know, and... Uh, then the rest is history. It, it started going well. We had enough resources to do what we needed. And uh, it's 30 years later, and the channel's still up, and I'm very proud of that. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. What would you say, Art, would be not necessarily the most you know, successful time or the most successful moment or something, but the mo- a moment that you can kind of look back on where you felt like you were having the most fun, like this was really <laughs> fun, or I got to meet this person, or we got to, you know, go do this with this other project and, you know, any, anything like that, any stories you got? Well, the, the, there were, yeah, there's like a zillion of them, but the, the first <laughs> one oh, where I thought, man, this is really going to be fun and it's going to be successful was when we got a show called Mystery Science Theater 3000, which has, you know, been around for a long time now. But the story on that, you know, it's a, it's a guy and two robots watching bad movies, making stupid remarks about them, funny remarks, is that it came in the mail, that we had announced that we were going to start a comedy network. And somebody walked in and said, guess, look what just came in the mail. And they put the tape in and we were laughing hysterically. And we couldn't believe our good luck, how funny this thing was. And uh, obviously, we flew out to Minneapolis where they were producing it as, a, as kind of a hobby and signed them up. And it became our first, our first hit. That's really what kept us alive that first year. But that moment of just laughing with the rest of the group, you know, again, I, I told you, it was a little bit tense. <laughs> right, right. But just that kind of that kind of group laugh and that group understanding that we'd found something that would never go on any other channel. And the letter that came with it was, hey, we heard you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something you could use? And I just thought, we are definitely going to be successful because innovative comedy is going to find us like it just did. So that was one very important moment. To shift the conversation, talk a little bit more about relationships. Who, who were some of the people... Like some of the most notable people that you got to spend time with during your during your time there. It could be, you know, someone that's that's well known that was like a performer, or it could be, you know, a, a partner or an employee or a director or something like that. But some, uh, some relationships that that meant a lot to you during that time period. Well, I think the most interesting relationship I had during the time at Comedy was with Michael Fuchs, who was the chairman of HBO and the person who green-lighted the channel and said, and basically bet his reputation on it. I learned so much watching him operate in the entertainment business. A couple of weeks before I pitched him, he had been named by the New York Times in a cover story on the New York Times Magazine as the most powerful man in Hollywood. And the idea that I was kind of like in the same office as him, trying to convince him of my way of doing things, was mind-boggling and definitely an experience. It's almost an out-of-body experience, like, what am I doing here? But that was the start of it. And then for the years that I was at Comedy and, and Michael was still at HBO, we had a lot to do with each other. We had a lot of interaction. And, and I got to watch him talk about the channel in the press. I got to watch him at board meetings, which we had every, every 
couple months. And sometimes he took me to task and, you know, I found myself in his jaws as he was waving his head around thrashing. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, every once in a while he said something nice about me, but you know, that was a relationship that I, uh, I think was something I will never reproduce again in my career. Uh, I'm sort of towards the end of it anyway, but, but, um, you know, that was really a formative relationship for me. Would you say then with that in mind, would you say that who, you know, or what, you know, is more important art and why, you know, it's a question I got asked by younger people who are trying to get into the television business all the time. And uh, maybe the answer will surprise you. I, I really think that the reason people want to know you and want to mentor you or want to be part of your career or involved with you at all is because of what you know or what you can demonstrate as talent or skill or, or ambition or the ability to work hard or the ability to uh, articulate your point of view. All of those things are why people, you know, it's usually the first person to do that when you're working is your boss. Yeah. You know, we'll come around and say, hey, Art, you know, let's, you know, what, what do you want to do with yourself? You know, what do you what, what are you interested in? Where do you want to end up? You know, and that's that's what you want to hear. The whole idea of mentorship where it's like, hi, uh, Art, uh, this is Bill. Bill's going to be your mentor for the next two. You know, I, I can't even I can't even picture scenarios like that because <laughs> because you want you want that mentorship to kind of show up organically. And, and the yeah. way it shows up organically is you are good. Somebody notices and they want to bring you along. Yeah, got it. As you look through your career, that's obviously the one that you were just talking about is a relationship where you you gained a lot from that in terms of uh, kind of being mentored by uh, this person that, that you looked up to a lot. Uh, do, do you have do you have any advice for for people that are maybe in a phase of their life uh, where they want to give back and they want to help other people avoid mistakes that they've learned in their journey to success. Uh, do, do you have any, have any advice for them? Yeah, actually, um, you know, one of the, I think one of the most satisfying things about working or having a career is the ability to work with younger people who are looking to, you know, to make their name in whatever business you're in yeah. and the ability to, it's not only, it's not only an ability, it's really an obligation that you have to spot these people and help them along in any way you can. Again, usually it's people working for you or around you or, you know, you have some relationship with, but everybody knows, everybody can spot them. And the question is, what do you do for them and how do you help them? And I think that's, you know, that's up to everybody on an individual basis, but mostly it's about talking to them and saying, what do you want to do? How can, you know, how can you achieve your goals? Is there something I can do to help? The other thing is, you know, as I said, I'm sort of, you know, I've, I've become a writer. I wrote this book and I find that talking to um, classes, which I've been doing a lot, you know, business school classes or television and film school classes about my experience. I mean, they are fascinated. I give them insight. They would get nowhere else from nobody else. And um, I feel really good about it. So the whole experience of helping people try and get into the business based on you know, whatever you've done to get into the business, whatever business that is, and to be successful in whatever way you want to define success is so satisfying. And it's been very satisfying to me. And I, don't, I, I think everybody should just take that on as part of their job. Well, I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation for me, Art. I, being, being a huge fan of comedy myself, um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. 
Um, is there any last like kind of departing piece of networking advice specifically, relationship building advice that you would give to somebody that's listening to this? You know, the biggest needle mover, like what do you view as being, if you do this, you know, putting everything else aside, there's plenty of ways to get the job done. But in my experience, if you do this one thing, you'll find that, you know, you'll have uh, a better relationships in life, in your professional life or career. Yeah, well, it's kind of a, a little more complicated than that, but consider everybody you meet as a potential contact. You know, somebody who can help you in some way, even before they open their mouths, if you're in meetings with them and everything else. And the second thing is, be aware of the impression you're making on everybody at your company or anywhere else. You don't want to be known in any kind of negative way. You know, there are screamers out there. There are people who are overly demanding in a way that's, you know, that, that, that shuts people down. You don't want to be one of those. You want to be one of the people that your peers and everybody else around says, you know, I, I want to get to know this guy a little bit or this gal a little bit better. You know, I, I want to stay in touch so that when you call or that when you, you know, try and cement a, a, a connection, people are open to it. And the people who do best at that, I'll tell you, having a sense of humor has, has been so helpful to me in that, because if you can make people laugh and, you know, then they're, they're going to be more likely to, to think you're interesting and, and, uh, and worth knowing. So there you have it. Well, this, this has been a great conversation, Art. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Let's go to move into the last segment, something that's called a random round. Just quick random questions, quick random answers. Ready? Okay. What profession, other than your own, do you think that it would have been fun to attempt? That's an interesting one. I think I would have liked to be an intelligence officer for the CIA. Why? Mm -hmm. Because I like, I, like to, I like to work around really smart people solving hairy problems. And I think that's probably a place where you get a lot of that. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and chat for an hour, who would it be? Winston Churchill. That's funny. That's I told you I've done a few of these interviews today, and uh, that is the second time that I've heard that one. And he would be at the very at the top of my list somewhere too. Yeah, definitely a fascinating one. Oh, really? I hate to be like average, <laughs> but, but <laughs> no, I, not I, at all. He's just not going to change my answer. I mean, I, I just read a biography. I've read several about him, but I just read another one, and the guy was completely out of his mind. He was funny as hell. He, yeah. was, he was a writer, a historian, a politician, a statesman. I mean, I could just go on and on. An artist. I mean, how would you not want to know this person? He was just like the, you know, the ultimate human being. Yeah, I agree. I agree, definitely. How do you like to consume content? Art, books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? I guess I'm old-fashioned. I, like, uh, I like books. I like to read books, and I like to have them around me when I'm working to remind me what I've learned from them, <laughs> assuming I've learned something. <laughs> what is a good book that you'd recommend to basically anybody? There's a book called Built to Last. Uh, is that by Collins? Yeah. It was written a while ago, and it really talks about what you have to do to be, su to be successful as a company. And it's really ultimately simple stuff, like set goals, you know, things like that. But you'll be surprised at how many places I've worked where that stuff gets buried. Mm -hmm. And so I would always pull it out and remind myself what's important. What do successful companies do to be successful? And that's, that was just a great look at what successful companies did to become successful. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. <laughs> it's pretty boring. Uh, get up. I read the New York Times. I glance at the Washington Post just in case the Times missed something. And then I, um, I do my exercise routine, which includes a lot of yoga, which I've become a fan of. And then I meditate, which I've also taken up in the last couple of years and find to be very, uh, very helpful. 
and then I might play either drums or piano before starting whatever I'm supposed to be doing that day, which is writing or something. That's my morning routine. What is your go-to pump-up song? Satisfaction by the Stones. What is something that you are not very good at? You know, I'll tell you, this is, it's a crazy thing, but I've seen people who are such great networkers, people who could instantly bond with whomever they're... I, I had a boss who would be in a meeting with somebody for the first time, somebody important, and he'd come out of the meeting and say, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to go with my wife and I are going to visit him at his place in the desert this weekend. And I'm thinking, you just met this guy, but he <laughs> was so adept. He was so adept at making friends with anybody instantly. And he was the greatest networker in the world. Mm. I did not have that capability. I never could develop it. And I watched this guy for years. As we get everything wrapped up here, Art, what is one place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most? Uh, well, I mentioned my website, artbellwriter.com. They can find out about me. I got an interview with myself on the website. I've got a lot of funny writing I've done. They can find out about my book. They can find about, uh, out about you know my career. And also, you know, if they want to get in touch with me, that's a good way to do it. Art Bell, spelled exactly how it sounds, artbellwriter.com. And then uh, be sure to go pick up a copy of his book, guys, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Promise you it's going to be worth your time. Art, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Travis. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.